Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. We all want to combat extremism, but what is the best way of doing it? Radicalisation is an extremely complex issue and its manifestations are rapidly changing. I'm Connor Pope and I'm joined by Rural South MP and Progress Chair Alison McGovern. Today on the podcast we're speaking to Laura Frumkin, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the Open University. Laura has worked in NGOs in Washington, D.C. and in the U.S. Justice Department. She now spends her time researching, among many other things, the psychology behind radicalization. Laura, could we start by talking about stereotypes around people who become radicalized, what these stereotypes are and, and how true maybe they are? Sure, of course. There are a lot of stereotypes around people who become radicalized. And certainly we would look towards far-right groups and we'd also look towards, let's say, Islamic groups. And while those stereotypes do hold to some extent, I think we actually need to be looking much more broadly at who's becoming radicalized and also why they're becoming radicalized, because I think it's not the group or the person or the profile, him or herself, that's the problem, but rather the underlying reasons why. In the past couple of years, we've had a number number of uh, terrorist attacks in, in this country, most notably Manchester, but also London Bridge, Westminster Bridge, Finsbury Park and Batley. Now, these attacks had different ideologies, different targets and different methods, but do we know if there are similarities in the way that these types of extremists become who they are? We sort of know. One of the problems I would say in academia, but also I'd say in, in policy or in politics around this, is that we don't have enough or sufficient amounts of data. So we have some data and we have some, some evidence that we're looking at, but we don't really have enough to say, yes, this is the thing that we can look at. This mm. is the way people are becoming radicalized. So instead, what we're doing is we're trying to look at other bits of research. Um, and as a psychologist, I would say other bits of psychological research, although mm. political scientists, scientists would look at their, their research, of course. I'm um, trying to figure out how what we know from the evidence can help us to understand and inform us on who and why people might become radicalized. Certainly, there isn't one common path, and that is part of the reason this is so problematic yeah. for us. And that's kind of scary, isn't it, from a political point of view, because... 
I mean, Connor, I noticed um, in our little notes, you've put inverted commas around radicalized, because I think this is a term that is used in politics as if we know what that means. And as if it is a thing, such and such a person became radicalized. But like, what even is that? Is that, you know, something that could happen to all of us? Or actually, it sounds like what you're saying is we don't know that much about it. So as far as we know just now, it feels almost random. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I would say that's exactly right. And I actually would even talk about both radicalization and extremism in terms of there are a lot of people who might have radical or extreme views, but as long as they're not acting violently, that might not be something that we need to be quite as concerned about. Um, whereas anybody who seems like they're going to be engaging imminently in violent behavior is certainly the sort of person we want to get right on top of. Yeah. So there is that toxic combination between extreme views and the potential for violence. But actually, what we really need to work out is what is the connection between those two when it comes together? Yes, exactly. And when is it coming together? Why is it coming together? And to the best of our abilities, how is it coming together? Do we know much about what kind of role technology uh, and social media in, in, in particular play on this? Because it doesn't feel like a, um, a kind of uh, extreme suggestion to say that actually social media has an enormous impact on people's psych- psychology now. This, this seems like a pretty widely accepted uh, thing, but do we, do we really know what, what role it plays in this kind of thing? We don't really know what role it plays, um, but we do know that it plays some sort of role. And one of the things that we look at when we're looking at people who are becoming radicalized would be um, a quest for belonging or, or needing a sense of belonging. And there are people who will sometimes feel marginalized or isolated. And if they can't find groups in their physical space, they might go to an online community. If they go to an online community, are they then only engaging with people who have similar views to them? Or are they being encouraged, if they are vulnerable people, to promote and put up um, radical or extremist material on their own social media and pushing that out to other people? What would a more progressive approach to combating radicalization and extremism really look like, do you think? Um, I would say really looking much more at a community or bottom-up type of approach. And there are a number of different things that we could look at. So one thing that that people do look at all the time is prevention. But I think oftentimes they're looking more at what I would and others would label secondary prevention. So they're finding people who are vulnerable, who possibly are on a pathway towards radicalization, and then trying to get in and stop them. What we might want to look at instead is true primary prevention, which is finding people who have shown no interest or no vulnerability towards engaging in extremist or radicalized views, but still might be at risk for whatever reason. That's a very hard thing to do because you're targeting and trying to reach people who we don't know if they are going to engage or not. But I think that kind of community grassroots or bottom-up approach at the local levels really can start to make a difference. Why does that make such a difference? Um, Because I think what we're really getting at is we're getting at people locally. Right now, what we have is we have a top-down type approach. So the government or academics are saying, here are things that we think might be a concern, or here are the programs that we're going to support. Once you get into the local community, once you know what people are really doing, and I I mean truly at the local level, so you're asking um, community leaders who interact with young people, or you're asking Um, people who are able to reach the hard-to-reach groups, what's going on in those communities? How might we reach out and get those communities? How might might we get them into 
um, a community, give them a sense of community, give them a sense of belonging that they don't have. How might we be able to do that? And that's really what I mean by a bottom-up type approach. Once you start pulling people in to the society, you might start to pull them off a possible pathway to radicalization. And doesn't that rely quite a lot on trusting people who are, um, how can I put this, you know, the, if if government is going to be really interested in that, then it f- has to take quite a long-term approach where it says, okay, actually, who local faith leaders are in a particular part of a city or whatever really matters. Like We really have to trust those people that they know what's going to stop um, people who they connect with every day feeling isolated or, you know, like as if uh, extreme forms of conduct are the only thing that's there for them. We really have to sort of believe in people who are not policy experts, for want of a better word. Yes. Yes. I, I think, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what needs to be done. And I think it is putting a lot of trust in, in those people. It's putting a lot of trust in the community, but I think that really is a way forward. People have been trying to work on terrorism for quite some time and it is helping, but I don't think it's helping enough. So I think if you take that top-down approach, which the government does have, and it's very good, but if you couple that with the bottom-up approach, then you're you're kind of tackling this problem from two or perhaps even three or four different angles. And I think that might start to help even more. And when you um, talk about kind of identifying these types of people, but without necessarily them having shown... Um, any inclination towards uh, extremism in the past? Um, so are you kind of looking at, at social factors uh, and, and what kind of things might, what kind of what kind of people would you be looking for if not people who, you know, you reckon might be extremists, essentially? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I, it's a great question. I think it's a, a really hard one to deal with because without wanting to profile, and we have, been, we have shown, I think we have been shown, that profiling really doesn't work. So what we're looking for are particular vulnerabilities or particular motives that might happen for some people. Now, we do know that social factors tend to be more of an issue in radicalization than do individual factors. Um, But to some extent, we need to look at a bit of those individual factors, like loneliness, like also perceived injustice. Does an individual feel as a result of something that happened to him or her or to his or her community, um, that they have some level of injustice or even perceived injustice that they have been dealing with. When we're looking at other issues, we might want to look at identity and need for identity. Do people feel that they have a place in society or in community or in their local schools? How do they feel that they fit in? And if they're feeling that they don't fit in, those might be people we want to start looking at. Laura, if I may, you're kind of making the case for multiculturalism. (laughs) You're effectively saying we all need our own story. We all need to kind of, in a country like Britain, that's got people from everywhere, you know, that we can't be monocultural. We can't give privilege to one sort of background or another. We have to be quite accepting of everybody's background and let them tell their own story about their identity. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And I I think that that has said it so well. And I think Britain has done a great job with that, but it needs to keep happening and it needs to happen more. And it needs to happen more at a top level, at a bottom level, at a community level. It needs to happen more everywhere. Hooray for Britain. (laughs) (laughs) 
mentioning loneliness there, I thought was really interesting because Alison, that feels like something that has been addressed a bit more by politicians recently. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of slight tragedy in this conversation in that loneliness was one of the great causes that um, my colleague Joe Cox worked on. And in her name, um, Rachel Reeves actually led on our behalf, along with Conservative Member of Parliament, Seema Kennedy, led Joe's Loneliness Commission, the piece of work that she had been starting when she was killed. And I think she saw that in Batley and Spen. She saw different groups of people all feeling kind of lonely and isolated and not able to tell that good story about who they were and where they came from. We now have a Minister for Loneliness Although Tracy, who was the first Minister for Loneliness, having recently resigned over the gambling debacle, I'm assuming um, that role will now be taken on by Mims Davis, who's her replacement. But with cross-party support, you know, there's been a a new Minister for Loneliness. um, And I think the government is quite conscious of that as an agenda, is seeing it as a public health challenge, which is, I think, the right way to look at it, not blaming any one individual for feeling lonely in society, but saying that's a collective job that we all have to do to make sure that people are included. Because the interesting thing, I think, well, one of the interesting things about this seems to be that actually by doing these things, yes, we could combat radicalization, but actually these are just social problems that need sort solving anyway. Quite right, yeah. I think we'll take a short break there, but we'll be back right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ali, earlier this year, the government announced grants for campaigns to help women's empowerment, which is kind of related to all of this. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? So this is basically bottom-up approach, but as it affects other countries, and strictly speaking, really poor countries. So British aid supports work in normally in the least developed countries in the world. And this scheme was set up in Joe Cox's name to empower women in some of those countries. The basic idea being that a lot of violence happens in societies where women's voices are not heard, where women's leadership is not valued. And there's a lot of evidence around that. And 
the fund is basically designed to do as Lara was suggesting, which is trust women leaders and women civil society organisations in those countries. So it's really good, I think, that another of Joe's causes, which was women's leadership, mm. um, is actually being used to try and say, okay, we have to invest for the long term. Like if we're going to deal with some of these problems of um, violence and a lack of inclusion, yes, in Britain, but also in the poorest countries of the world, then you have to take time to develop women's voices and women's political leadership. Laura, is is there um, uh, an extent to which actually politicians and the media, and especially some of the rhetoric around a lot of divisive issues that have been around over the past few years, does that play into um, radicalisation at all? Does it kind of push people further away from what is they perceive as being the mainstream? Definitely. I think I mean, all of those do make a difference. In terms of the media... I think what we what we find is that the media overinflates radicalization and terrorism and doesn't focus on maybe the continual everyday problematic issues. Um, so some work that I've done has looked at general community tensions. Um, and I actually was looking really at was there conflict um, religiously or ethnically um, in particular communities? And what I found is while there is, that isn't so much around thoughts about terrorism and radicalization, but instead it's just about general conflict, not understanding other people's cultures, not understanding other people's values. Why are some groups particularly religious, whereas others aren't? How can we be appreciative and willing to acknowledge that other people are different than us, but actually they have a lot of similarities? So I used to be a, a Southwark counsellor, and one of the the issues we had was in in a part of Southwark where there's a lot of African shops because there's an African community. It used to kind of slightly upset me. And this is my like confession, like that we're all, however big a multiculturalist we are, we all have our, have our points where we get irritated by other people's difference. So African butchers tend to be open to the street and tend to have like meat kind of very visible. And I remember walking down thinking, God, you know, I am I am absolutely proud of our diverse community, but that's just different from how I have known butchers. And I remembered this the other day when I was in a local butcher in the Wirral, where I now represent, and they had a picture of that butcher's uh, in the mid-19th century, and the meat was hanging outside. <laughs> That looks just like one of the African butchers that they used to be in Peckham that used to irritate me. And it's really interesting because because actually those those points of difference when you probe them are often, they're not as different as people think. But if those questions go unaddressed, you know, it can fuel a kind of dissatisfaction between communities or people of different background. Yes, definitely. I think having the space and the opportunity to speak to people who are different um, and not necessarily in a structured way, but just being able to, to have a chat and to understand where people are coming from is something that's really important. I think the other thing uh, which you picked up on is looking at how society is very dynamic. It changes constantly. So something that might have happened 50 years ago in Britain um, with a British population, white British population is now happening with the African British population and trying to be tolerant and understanding differences. And 50 years from now, that might change again. Absolutely. Because it's like identity is is a really hard thing to characterize. You know, it can sometimes be a bit like nailing jelly to the wall to try and get a fix on what is it about our identity that is different or that we value. However, at, when there's conflict about it, it can feel like very important. People have an emotional 
attachment to their identity like nothing else. You know, as we're seeing in the Brexit debate, you know, people feel very strongly about it because it's all about identity. Yes, I, I think you're exactly right. And in terms of identity, we also have multiple identities at any one time. So I have my personal identity of being an academic. I have my identity of being female. I have my identity about where I came from. And all of those identities are within me at any one time, but which one is salient or which one stands out changes depending on what's happening within my society or the conversations that I'm having. Which to bring it back to kind of the radicalization, actually what's sometimes going on is that feeling of injustice is becoming the most salient part of that person's identity. Exactly. Which is why you need to tackle it. Yes, it's exactly why you need to tackle it. And, And what's happening for that person, what's happening with the injustice and how can we address that? How can the community or how can the politicians talk about the injustice and give that person or a particular group of people the space to share their views. So this this feeds into your idea of the the bottom-up approach to all of this, doesn't it? Where people have different, lots of different identities, but if you only ascribe someone one identity and and, and kind of one to yourself, then it, people don't realise the ones that they actually share. Is that, is that about right? Is that how, how we should kind of approach this? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And we have seen from some research programs or or kind of public programs where we will get groups of people together who come from different backgrounds, whether Mm. they're religious or they're ethnic, and we put them together for something that has nothing to do with the religious or ethnic conflict. And week after week, once they start talking, they realize that they have a lot more in common than they do in terms of their difference. So they feel similarly about... um, art or they feel similarly about music or they feel similarly similarly about how they taxation might have, exactly <laughs> taxation yes exactly <laughs> of course that was your suggestion have um, you got um are there any examples of, of these kind of programs where, where it's been done particularly well do you think um there are some programs so one i was just speaking with someone in in Manchester, and I, I need to get a bit more information about mm. this program, but one of the things that I was being told um, that they're doing in Manchester is they're trying to bring together different religious groups um, into common spaces to share and understand religious festivals. Um, so that's one sort of thing that they're doing. I think the most interesting bits of work often do come out of the worst examples of terrorist mm. atrocities. And um, speaking of the Northwest, the one I always think of is the Peace Center set up um, for um, Jonathan Ball and Tim Parry, two young boys who were killed in the Warrington bomb mm. in the early 90s. And that their foundation and that Peace Centre has done a huge amount of work bringing different communities together and trying to say, okay, what are the, we know that you can't get peace easily, so what are the composite parts of it and how do we promote it? I was actually uh, reading about a programme just like this this morning, which perhaps hasn't been quite as successful as they were hoping but uh, it's Canvey Island Council, um, which has seen in recent years um, a relatively large number of Orthodox Jewish people move there because they've been priced out of living in Stamford Hill, which is in London. And so previously Canvey Island, I think, had been 98% white British or something like that, uh, which is quite a remarkable statistic anyway. Um, And so the council has been trying to do more of these community events in order to get different people from different backgrounds together and understand a bit more about uh, the Jewish faith. And so they're planning things ahead of uh, Hanukkah, including uh, a festival of Jewish music, um, although they hadn't quite uh, run it all by members of the Orthodox 
Jewish community. And so they, uh, they were unable to attend due to religious reasons. <laughs> but uh, but there, was a, there was a lovely quote saying, it's, you know, it's a real shame that we can't attend, but it seems like a really lovely idea. <laughs> but I think it possibly shows the limitations. The perils. Yeah. The perils. Um, but I think the, the, the one in Manchester you were talking about, I think is called um, We Stand Together, which uh, I think has been run in... Uh, correlation with the Foundation for Peace, which is another good organisation yeah. which does... And, and the Manchester Evening News, who have been actually kind of a really good example of where the media, I think, can make a difference and can be a positive. Mm. You know, it's not all bad in terms of our media. I think sometimes we fixate on the kind of um, more irrational kind of shouty bits of our media, but then there's regional papers like the MEN who do a great job to kind of talk about different communities in mm. a very open-minded way and help people to understand what might be going on. Yes, and I think the media is a very powerful vehicle to get positive things across as well. And I think sometimes even reading things from kind of both perspectives or not only reading what you already believe in and not kind of whether it's internet or or paper media, not ha not living in an echo chamber, I think is very important because once you start hearing somebody else's perspective, it might make you question, even for a, a momentary second, what it is that you believe in and just think about something from a different perspective. And I think that's the sort of thing that we want to look at when we're thinking about radicalization. If you can stop, pause, reflect for a moment on what sorts of things you're thinking and why you're following a particular pathway, if you see something different, might you question what you're doing? Mm. That's interesting, actually. I've not really thought about that, but f certainly from my experience of local media is that actually they generally tend to be better than the national media at covering, covering a lot of this thing and, and, and understand, you know, what they need to do a bit better. Oh, I think, I think so. I think so. I think partly because they are a bit more directly in contact with mm. communities. I mean, they are definitely a bottom-up approach. Definitely. They're a bit more in contact with people. Whereas the truth is that national papers are often written um, in quite an isolated London media world. And I mean, I saw this as a local councillor and often see it as a local MP. If you're dealing with a difficult issue, you know, the people who get the story right are often the local media, whereas journalists will sometimes turn up from quite far away with not a lot of a clue mm -hmm. as to really the full story. And then they'll write something that plays into stereotypes because that's all they've got to go on. I mean, this is not to criticise national journalists many of them are very good <laughs> however actually often you get a fuller picture from local and regional media yeah, maybe we should get a local journal on in a future episode i think that sounds like quite interesting definitely finally ali do you have any kind of campaigns or organizations that you think listeners at home well they want to get involved in this kind of thing i am afraid very biased in favor of hope not hate not least because of the great work that they um did after joe was murdered and I am supporting their action fund, which does two things. Um, firstly, it supports some of their really good work on um, exposing the far right, which is, you know, important at this time. And, you know, they were very instrumental in telling the story of what's happened to some of my colleagues in terms of the impact of the far right on their life. But also um, they do really excellent community-based, my new favourite phrase, bottom-up <laughs> work to, you know, to really kind of in line with all of the messages that Joe 
um, herself spoke of to really demonstrate that actually people do have more in common than that which mm. divides us. And that means working really closely alongside local communities to deal and talk about some of the, the issues that, that we've been talking about on this podcast. Well, you be able to find a link to the Hope Not Hate Action Fund underneath this podcast. That's all we've got time for today. But Laura, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. Every week we ask a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. This week I'm asking about the slogan, It's the Economy, Stupid, famously used on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. But who on that campaign is credited with coming up with the phrase? If you think you know, do drop us an email at office at progressonline.org.uk. And as I said, I'll reveal the answer on Friday's episode of the Progressive Britain podcast. In the meantime, please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.